0: Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan, and the pastor here, and we're in the midst of a series called Loving Community. Um, so the Lord kind of gave us this big picture vision for the year, uh, Loving Community for Bold Exploration. And the first place that he invited us to go, kind of working our way up to the Easter season, uh, was to really center in on the story of Jesus that we find in the Gospel of John, and to allow John to reveal to us a Jesus who calls us his beloved. And when we kind of establish that that foundation of belovedness, it's from that place that we can begin to build an understanding of, okay, now what does it mean for us to be the loving community, the men and the women, the brothers and the sisters, the children of God that he's inviting us to be. And so last week, we begun this this journey just examining loving community um, by really looking at intimacy and how God invites us, first of all, to transparency, um, which is basically Sharing information, sharing about our lives, but then the place of vulnerability, which is actually to welcome someone into your life, welcome someone into your story. And then finally, that actual place of intimacy, um, which is the, the shared story, the shared place of communion, and how so easily we can, we can mix those three things up that we can mistake transparency for intimacy, we can even mistake vulnerability for true intimacy, but allowing those things to kind of be untangled, to see this journey of growing deeper into relationship with one another. And so today, I kind of want to build from that platform that we're talking about. Intimacy is us coming alongside of one another and it's that steadfast withness that we find, that, that level of commitment to one another in community, that we belong to the people of God uh, because we have been gifted with a family. That it's less about us choosing the people we think are worthy of our time, and more about us recognizing, no, it's because of what God has done through Christ that we've been chosen into a family, and we receive this family as a gift. Uh, So we're going to be building on that today by looking at loving community and how it refines us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we testify to the truth that you are here tonight, uh, that you're already moving in, in, in countless ways in this room. Lord, I look around and I just see faces of people that I, I know so many stories and so many of them ha- have yet to be unfolded and, and understood, but I see the testament of your hand at work in all of us. And I just celebrate that right now in this moment, Lord. Um, you know, it's, it's we don't have to come in here and just build from from nothing, but Lord, for each of us, there have been these very specific moments in our stories where you have already revealed something of your character to us, and you've already spoken something about how you see us and who you're calling us to be. And so, Lord, we're here uh, for you to, to, to build bridges and to make connections, uh, to continue to build upon that foundation of truth, uh, that we want to, to meet you here, Lord, that we, yes, we belong to your family, but we also, we want to be transformed, we want to be changed, uh, we want to look more like you Uh, leaving here than we did when we came in. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight. O Lord, a rock and a redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to tell you, probably the worst church joke ever written. Okay, here's how it goes. So there was a pastor in a small town, very well known for his preaching techniques. He was fiery, it was full gospel, and there was always this call to action at the very end. He says, After this, I'm going out there, and I'm preaching the gospel, and I'm saving souls. Who's with me? And everyone in the church would stand up, and they're like, all right, let's go do this. The truth was, the pastor had his golf clubs in the back of the car, and after church, every Sunday, he'd drive to the next town over and just do a round of golf by himself. Every single Sunday, same thing, fiery sermon, this commitment to go out there and to preach the gospel, and then he'd just go play a round of golf. So, one Sunday, the archangels Gabriel uh, and Michael decide to come and visit this church. Uh, so they're sitting in the back, the, they're, they're watching the whole spiel, you know, at the end the pastor says, I'm going out there and I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to save souls, who's with me? And then they watch this guy get in his car and drive off to go play golf and they think, this isn't okay. This, this, is, this is hypocritical, this guy's taking advantage of the system. So, the next Sunday, they invite the Lord Almighty to come with them because just because you're in church doesn't mean that God's always there, Right? Can I get a testimony? So God sits in the back. He watches this whole thing. You know, he watches the pastor get in his car drive off and the angels are like, Lord, what are you gonna do about this? This guy's soiling your name. He's a hypocrite, like he's misleading this church. What are you gonna do? So God says, okay, we're gonna follow him. So they, you know, transport over to the golf course. They watch this guy tee up and and the angels are kind of hiding behind bushes and they're like, okay, this is gonna be really interesting. How's God gonna get back at this guy? And so the pastor tees up he hits that first ball, shoo, poo, hole in one. He can't believe it. Never happened before. gets a hole in one. And the archangels are thinking, what is about to happen? This is a little bit strange. So he tees up for the second hole. Pastor goes, he swings, he hits it. Pew! another hole in one, two holes in one simultaneously, and this happens over and over and over again for 18 holes. He gets 18 holes in one. One of them, he hits it off a tree, and it bounces into the air, and it hits this bird, and it rolls through the rough, and then it goes in. He can't believe it. He's never had a game of golf like this. Nobody has ever played a game of golf like this, and he gets to the end, and he has 18 holes in one. And so Michael and Gabriel come to God afterwards and they're like, Lord, he's been taking advantage of your name. Like he's been been soiling your reputation. He's a hypocrite. He's been misleading his flock and you go and you're gonna give him um, an entirely perfect game of golf. Like what kind of payback is that? And God says, yeah, but who's he gonna tell? (laughs) We'll give it a moment. Loving community refines us. That's the point. Loving community refines us to know and to be known, to reveal our stories to one another, but also to allow ourselves to become part of other people's stories. And so this whole series, we're really specifically talking about us within the Christian household. And I think we probably need to talk at a later date about our relationship to people that do not consider themselves Christians because there's a very different dynamic at play there. And it's very difficult when we begin to misunderstand how we relate to one another versus how we relate to people outside of our household. In most blunt terms, we see this often in the street preacher who's telling somebody that they're going to hell because they don't believe in God, but they already don't believe in hell, so it's kind of this like double move backwards from encountering the love of God. That's the kind of thing that I want us to be talking about. So last week we talked about how we have been gifted with the family of God and given this sense of belonging. Not because we've earned it, not because we're worthy or unworthy, but because God has chosen us, and so in turn, we choose one another. But the big question is, after that step of belonging, the giftedness of the people of God, uh, now what? What does that look like? And perhaps you've had encounters within Christian community where there has been, there's been that moment of crisis where your, something within your story gets found out. Maybe it's a sin or a shortcoming. Maybe it's a, a secret that you'd rather not everybody know. And there becomes that moment when it's revealed to someone else and you are in fight or flight mode. Do I stay here and do I defend myself, or do I cut and run? And that's really where I want us to be exploring this idea of accountability, and how Christian accountability refines us, purifies us, sanctifies us, makes us look more like Christ. That when we decide to stay present in the relationships God has gifted us with, rather than cutting and running, rather than running away from one another, we find the refinement that I think that we so desperately desire. And so, we choose to live in the tension between belonging and being transformed. There's, I love identifying these tensions that we live in as human beings. And the question to us is not whether or not we choose to live in a tension, but is that tension going to be creative or is it going to be destructive? And usually a tension is destructive when we try to resolve it to, to kind of fall to one side or the other. And I think that this kind of tension, the tension between belonging and the tension between being transformed, often can lead us into two extremes. The first is when it's belonging without the call to transformation. In community, when we experience the the call to belong without the expectation of transformation. And this is that kind of permissive form of love, where we're here and we belong to one another, but there's no expectation for you or I to change and it becomes very permissive. I remember even being in college and maybe you've experienced this too, we had the friend that was dating the guy that's really bad news and everyone says well we don't really like him but if we love her we're gonna let her make her own decisions and you're like yeah that wait a minute that doesn't sound right. You know we kind of have this false idea sometimes of love that it's permissive. Um, That we just let people do what they want and that's what uh, it means for us to be truly loving. And so we can find ourselves resolving that tension by saying There's so much belonging here, there's no expectation for us to change, or to be transformed, or to to walk a journey with one another. And in that place, true, deep community dies. But I think the other resolution to this, this tension is to go the other direction, where there's transformation without belonging. There's an expectation for us to change and be transformed, but there's not that foundation of belonging. And this is so often when we condemn one another, We say, you need to change, you need to meet these standards, you have to perform, you have to check off all the boxes, and until you do so, you don't really belong. So much of the modern church has been crafted around this idea that first you believe, and then you behave, and then eventually you become something. Then eventually, maybe you'll get to belong. But the ancient church, and even what we find in our own roots in Judaism, is that you start from the place of belonging. And as you belong to the community, you're changed by it. And you become something. And as you become something, you start to believe it. And I think today is the time for us in the history of the church to reclaim that ancient pattern of belonging and then becoming as we believe. And so there's those two tensions, that tension that we try to resolve either in a permissive sense of love that doesn't ask us to change or an expectation for transformation that has no foundation of love in it. But we have to remember that God uses community as a tool for our purification, to help us to become more Christ-like. That's why God has gifted us with community, that we belong, but there's also an expectation that God is going to use each of us to refine the others, to sharpen the others, to comfort and to challenge one another. And so I want to build on what we talked about last week with this idea of advocacy is is I'm for you no matter what. There's an unconditional sense of love in our togetherness. And I want to move us to this. Advocacy must be the foundation upon which we build genuine fellowship. Advocacy is that foundation that we're going to build genuine fellowship. I love on Easter, this culmination of the story of John, that we really honed in on what is the role of the Holy Spirit, not only when Jesus breathes on his disciples and empowers them to go out and to bring the kingdom wherever they go, but also what it means for you and I to to be spirit-breathed, to be inspired by the spirit of Jesus wherever we go that we bring that same kingdom. And I think it's really powerful to note that it's the spirit of Jesus that's the spirit of advocacy. And in the Gospel of John, it's usually um, put in contention with the spirit of accusation, which is the Satan. And so the invitation there is always to say, are you being animated by the spirit of advocacy, which is the spirit of Jesus, who did not come into the world to condemn it, but to save it? Or are you operating out of the spirit of accusation, the spirit of the Satan, the spirit that seeks to quench any forward movement of the kingdom, to bring death Uh, into other people's stories. And so we see from that moment that Jesus Jesus spends 40, 40 days after his resurrection teaching his disciples, performing many miracles, and then he ascends back into heaven. But before he does, he says to his disciples, I want you to wait in this upper room in Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit in a whole new way. And this is what we call Pentecost, which we're going to be celebrating in a couple of weeks. And so the disciples, they're waiting in this room, and the, the Spirit of God blows into the room, and these tongues of fire kind of alight on each of them, and they go out to the city, and they begin to speak all of these different languages. Because in that season, there were people from all over the known world that had traveled to Jerusalem for worship. And they're speaking all these different languages. And then Peter stands up, and he gives this beautiful sermon about repentance, about calling Israel back into being the family of God. Back to recognizing what their sense of belonging and chosenness really means. And it's, it's such a beautiful testimony of what it looks like when the Spirit of God moves. You know, when we're asking for the, the evidence of the Spirit, we often look at Acts chapter 2. And while I think that speaking in tongues is an incredibly important part of that, I think the real testimony is what happens even after that. It says, after the Peters call to repentance, there were 3,000 people added to the church. And it goes on at the very end of chapter 2, and it says, they continued to add onto their number daily. And in verse 42, we see this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so we find this, just this little chapter that says, what does it look like when the spirit of God begins to move through his faithful and to bring back those who have lost their way? And there's a devotion to the teaching of the apostles. There's a devotion to one another as they're sharing everything they have in common. There's this collective joy in the family that God is building that is attractive to those on the outside. And that's the testimony, that's the evidence of the spirit of God at work in that first church, and in our church today. And this is the first time that we see this word fellowship used. In the Greek, it means co- it's, uh, koinonia. And, and fellowship is different than community. I think a lot of us, we do community pretty well. You know, we relate to one another, we'll spend time with each other, we, en- we enjoy one another's company. And, and for some of us, community and fellowship have become these interchangeable words. But the the beauty of this word koinonia for fellowship is there's something about it that means kind of like the gift that we all contribute to. That fellowship means the idealized version of the family of God, of the community of God, the people of God. When we come together and we share our stories and our gifts and our passions with one another The evidence of what God is really like is all the brighter. It's like taking a diamond and kind of turning it slowly in the sunlight and seeing all of the different facets of light that reflect off of it, that you and I become these different little reflections of the image of God. And when we're in community with one another, God is made more known in that place. Um, Speaking of diamonds, somebody got engaged this week, Mark and Shannon. So we'll, t- we'll talk later on about how marriage is maybe one of the best demonstrations we have of what God's really like, uh, if only when it comes to who's gonna do the dishes. But koinonia is this idealized version of Christian community. There's a different kind of depth There's a different kind of mission and intention for what we're called to be for one another. And I think a lot of times we don't really, we're not really comfortable with this idea of fellowship because we don't trust the depth of devotion that we have for one another. Think about times in your life when you've been called out for something, when someone has pointed out a sin or a shortcoming, but it's come to you in a condemnatory way. And, and perhaps it was in a moment that you made yourself vulnerable and open and you shared something that you've never shared with someone before. And instead of that bringing you to greater freedom, it actually shut your story down you said, never again. And the masks bent, went back on and the walls went back up. And I think that's why so many of us are afraid of actually stepping into fellowship. And I believe that's why so many of us actually hold one another at arm's length that kind of special space where we're itching the scratch of community because we recognize we're interacting with another human being. But they're never allowed to get so close that it actually begs transformation. And so we think that we're living in this place of community because we see the people around us, but we realize that we're not actually being transformed. We're not actually allowing ourselves to meet the reality of God in the face and the words of the other person. And so if advocacy is this this unconditional witness, this, this, this devotion to one another where we're saying, I'm with you, then accountability is saying, therefore, because I'm with you, because I'm for you, here's the things that we need to interact with in order to grow and to be transformed. And so there's a difference between judgment and accountability in the family of God. There's a difference between judgment and accountability in the family of God. Do you realize that most of the New Testament is about accountability. Most of the letters, the substance of the letters of Paul and others, is this question of a holding one another accountable, comforting one another when we need lifted up, and challenging one another when we need to change and grow. That's the major bulk of the New Testament. And I think this is the precedent that Jesus established for what his people, his family, really looks like when we understand the true place of accountability within the Christian household. And so we're going to be looking at these two passages from Matthew that are very intricately tied. The first one's in Matthew 7 at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and the second one is Matthew 18. So we're going to jump into Matthew 7, uh, beginning in the first verse. Jesus says this, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured unto you. And I think this word judgment has been ruined for so many of us because we read judgment and we think condemnation because that's usually what we have received. And I think actually that's the kind of judgment that Jesus is speaking about in this passage here, that oftentimes you and I have this impoverished sense of, just, of, of judgment, of justice that's just about retribution, that it actually becomes this sense of control. That we're trying to control the lives and the stories of the people around us. But I think sometimes you and I judge one another because we're trying to cover over our own self-hatred. That we're, not, we're the ones that aren't able to meet the mat. We're the ones that aren't able to perform rightly. That we know there's these standards that we're being held to, but we recognize that we're incapable of it. But instead of facing that fear, we, we externalize it and we project it onto other people. And we judge and condemn one another on standards that we never want to be held to on our own. But essentially what happens when we step into this kind of judgment is that we are taking the role of God. What we're saying is, God, you're not moving fast enough for my agenda. God, if you would just hurry up and, 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 and set everything right, then I wouldn't have to do your job for you. There's this somewhat apocryphal story in the 1990s that when Billy Graham went uh, to the White House right after the Monica Lewinsky scandals and he had this lunch meeting with Bill and Hillary Clinton and he came out and the paparazzi were all over him, especially the Christian paparazzi, and they said, how can you do this? How can you sit down with this man who cheated on his wife and lied to the whole country? And he stood there and he said, he probably didn't do the Bill Clinton thing, although I almost did that. And he said, it's God's job to judge. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, and it's my job to love. And I think that's such a powerful image that too often you and I take on the role of God as judge because he's not working fast enough for our tastes or whatever it might be. And we begin to judge one another. We decide whose story gets to move forward and whose doesn't. But sometimes we also take the role of the Holy Spirit and we try to convict one another which is that we try to convince one another of our mutual sinfulness. But a lot of times what happens when we, in our limited perspective, in our prideful perspective, try to convict one another, we only bring condemnation because we cannot see the whole story. Oh, to be able to see the other people in this room through the eyes of God, what would that do for us? To see one another through the eyes of God. And unfortunately, when we begin to play these games with judgment and with conviction, we end up making God in our own image, that He serves our agendas, that He keeps us from having to examine our own stories. But if the answer is not to have these ridiculously high standards in which we condemn one another, the answer is also not to have such incredibly low standards that we don't have anything to speak to one another. I've always joked that my New Year's resolution every, uh, every year is to never, ever, 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 ever be disappointed with anybody, ever. And so far, you know, I'm 33 New Year's into this, and it's going great. But the answer isn't actually about having low standards. I think what Jesus is actually telling us here is that it's the call for us to offer grace to one another when it comes to accountability. To offer grace instead of accusation to recognize that you and I, were on this journey together. That none of us have arrived. All of us fall short in our own merit. And it's that awareness of humility that we're able to offer grace to one another and not a permissive grace that just allows things to fall to the wayside, but an empowering grace that actually speaks life into the lives of those around us. And so Jesus continues in verse three. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so what does this call to humility look like? Jesus is saying, own your stuff before you begin to try to help somebody else out with theirs. Because this is the reality. I know many of you, and I know your sins because you, for some reason, keep telling them to me. (laughs) Whatever you have done, thought, word, and deed, whatever you've not done, if I am playing it correctly, if I'm seeing it through the eyes of God, I just see a speck in your eye compared to what I'm aware of in my own story. I think this is maybe why Paul says... Uh, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. And you go, Paul, that's ridiculous. You can't possibly be the worst. But I think what he's saying is a level of humility in saying, whatever I see in your life and your story, if I'm honest with myself, I can see much more there. And if I choose to ignore my own story and my own journey and I try to reach out to help you, I will only hurt the both of us. And Lamont says, the greatest gospel we can preach is the gospel of me too to come alongside of somebody else in their story, to see their pain, to see their hurt, to see their shortcomings, and to say, yes, me too. But we're on this journey together, and so let's see if we can't help one another to be empowered by the grace of God to continue to move down the path together. I've said many times that I think the greatest gift that the Holy Spirit gives us is that level of self-awareness, to see ourselves through the eyes of God to begin that process of confession and repentance and transformation in our lives so that we're in a better position to come alongside one another. And the authority that we have to speak life into each other comes from experience because we know what it's like to walk that process of redemption with the Lord that we can begin to engage others in that same place. So what is the trajectory for accountability within the Christian household? If God's calling us to hold one another accountable, to challenge one another, to comfort one another, all built on this foundation of belonging, then where is it that he's taking us? Comfort, comforting and challenging one another to accountability fulfills God's desire for restoration. Accountability is the way in which God works in our lives to bring us to full and complete resurrect, uh, resurrection and restoration. We've been talking about it a lot recently in that idea of shalom, peace which means togetherness or wholeness or completeness. And the peace that God desires is, is a peace between God and man. It's a peace between man and man, and it's a peace within ourselves. That everything that's been broken up by sin in the world is brought back together and made whole. And the thing that has been sticking with me so much over the past year, and especially in seeing everything that's been going on within our community and within our nation and within the world, is to recognize that we so often think peace is just the destination. Peace is the thing that we're going to arrive at, and we kind of stumble through the dark trying to figure it out. But when we recognize that empowered by the Holy Spirit, peace not only is our destination, but it's also the way in which we walk the journey. We recognize that we're choosing wholeness and completeness now. And that journey of peace takes so much courage on our behalf to be able to envision God's future peace when everything will be made new, that ultimate future that he has in store for all of us, and to call back that vision of the future into the present and begin to enact it in the here and now. I think this is what people saw in that first church in Acts 2, that thousands of people came running to them, That they saw the evidence of what happens when the Spirit of God begins to weave the human family back together. And that's the kind of community that you and I are called to be. That this place should be so saturated with the love and the peace of God that people cannot imagine walking away from it. That they are attracted into it. Because they see something in it that speaks of what we're fully capable of being when we're human in the way that God has called us to be human. And so Jesus wants his church built on a deep, spirit-led relationships with one another. That the church, we are called to fulfill his most important work. And so we kind of leave the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, and we kind of pass through a lot of the story, and we come to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 18, and we're going to find the continuation on of Jesus talking about how it is that we're called to hold one another accountable. In verse 15, it says this, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now this seems pretty brutal, and it is, in a lot of ways. But it's one of the most practical uh, aspects of community that Jesus has given us. So I think in this first part, what Jesus is inviting us to recognize about Christian accountability is honesty and honor, and how honesty and honor guide us towards restoration. And the first thing is, is honesty. Honesty invites us to be, first of all, honest with the pain that we may carry because of somebody else's words or actions in our lives. And to be able to say, I'm worth enough in the eyes of God to come to the person who has sinned against me, who has hurt me, or disappointed me, or neglected me, or whatever it might be, and and to speak up, to bring up the fact that there's been an infraction, that there's been a disconnect, that we've been thrown into personal chaos. But when you balance that kind of honesty with a level of honor, that doesn't seek retribution for what has been done against us, but actual restoration it changes the whole course of how we interact with one another. Because now we're also being honest about the other person's life, and we're honoring them, and we're believing their story is not over because they've hurt us. That's what judgment looks like. Judgment is when we pin someone else to a moment in the past and we do not let them move past that point. But when we come to one another in honesty and honor, we're able to seek restoration. And I think it's so beautiful that Jesus says, first of all, just go to that person, one-on-one. You don't need to invite anybody else into it. You certainly don't need to go and tell five of your friends first to make sure that you're the one that's in the right and they're in the wrong so you have a backup gang just in case things get ugly. Oh Lord, if we could get rid of gossip in the church, we would be in a really good place. But he says, first of all, go just the two of you. If you win them over there, it's great. And the honoring thing is nobody else has to know about it. But if that doesn't work, take two or three other people, people that you trust, that can be objective, that are devoted to both of you equally, that can be the extra voice that speaks the wisdom of God in order to bring restoration and reconciliation. And then bring them before the whole community. Now, in the first church, they did it a little bit differently than we do. They met in much smaller pockets. They went to synagogue with the other Jews on Saturdays, but they were meeting throughout the week. But I think the principle is still the same, that we're growing in our awareness of who we're welcoming into these stories, but at every path along the way, it's always with the heart of restoration. And then I think it really gives us um, some challenge there when we look at that last piece. When Jesus says, if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And it sounds really harsh. There's this uh, other story in, in the Corinthian church where Paul finds out that there's this guy that's sleeping with his mother and nobody's saying anything about it. And he's like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Why are you just letting this happen? And he says, you need to take that guy and you need to hand him over to Satan. And you read that and you're like, that's the worst phrase in the Bible. Hand him over to Satan? That's terrible. But it's really amazing. We're only getting this little, you know, this little single shot into what's going on within this church community. That they were entering into that kind of uh, permissive, weak love that doesn't actually empower one another to change or to hold each other accountable. And it was actually poisoning the entire community. And so when it comes to this point where Paul's saying, you need to, to hand them over to Satan, you need to cast them out of community. We look at that and we say, that seems really harsh and condemnatory. But there's another little passage in the second letter to the Corinthians, or to Corinthians, depending on how you read that, where Paul says, okay, it's been long enough. I want you to welcome that person back in, offer them forgiveness, and comfort them. He says, don't overdo it. And I think that's so beautiful that here's just this little glimpse in how Paul's managing some of his churches and the drama that's found in them. But it's always with this eye towards restoration and reconciliation. Because I think it's important for you and I to recognize by Matthew 18, Jesus has already redefined what it means to love pagans and tax collectors. Because in his culture, that you just have nothing to do with them. They're on the outskirts of society. But what have we seen up to this moment in the story? Jesus loves pagans and he loves tax collectors and he loves sinners. He sits with them. He, He dines with them. He lives life with them. But there's a, different, uh, there's a different flavor to the kind of relationship that he has with them. It's not a, a relationship where there's an expectation for accountability. There's a relationship with the expectation of revealing the love of God to somebody so they repent and come back into the household. And so when Jesus here is saying, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, he's saying, the nature of the relationship you have with this person, if they're unrepentant, has changed. And there's no longer that expectation for accountability. There's no longer that expectation for a mutual openness in this relationship, but you're still called to love them. It's just going to look a little bit different. Back in Matthew 7, Jesus finishes up that passage with these very curious words. He says, do not give to dogs what is sacred and do not throw your pearls before swine. And pigs and dogs in Jewish culture were seen as these things that other people had, but we don't keep within our community. And I think it's that same thing, to recognize there's a difference between the kind of accountability that we're called to within the Christian household and then how we love other people that are on the outside of it. And so Jesus continues on in verse 18. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. He uses this language of binding and loosing. We think that that's probably uh, kind of a cultural little phrase at the time. That was usually uh, the, the realm of the Sanhedrin, which was the, the Jewish legal courts. And the idea was this, that whatever, whatever the Jewish legal system came up with, and these men that had been studying Torah their whole lives, when they came together in a, in a court case and decided, this is what the heart of God looks like, this would be his intention, then it also would be represented in heaven as well. And I think the really amazing thing here is that Jesus is taking that kind of authority, and he's offering it to you and I to all of us who call in his name, to all of us that have been animated by the Spirit of God, that now we have been given the authority to bind and to loose, to decide what is permissive and what is not. And I think that's a real challenge for us. Because first of all, it gives us the challenge that we have to come into agreement in objectivity. And we have to be able to come together and to say, here are my assumptions, but what does the Lord have to say about this? One of the things that I've learned in conflict resolution over the years is that, you know, 99.999 times I come in with an agenda to conflict resolution and an assumption of how it's going to turn out that isn't the story at all. And so I'm slowly learning to be a bit more open-handed when I step into conflict resolution, to be a little bit more willing to allow the Spirit of God to speak in that moment and a little less willing to come in with me already assuming who's in and who's out and who's right and who's wrong. And it's been an amazing journey because I found that so often the Spirit leads people to a far different conclusion than what they would have come up with on their own. So I think when you and I are empowered to this binding and loosing idea, it means that we come together and we say, here's my agenda and here's my understandings in this moment and here's my prejudices, but let's just pause and let's say, what does the Lord have to say about this? And let's inquire of Him. That if two or three of us are listening for the voice of God together, and we're sharing that with one another, then we're gonna find some sort of substance that leads us to genuine truth. And so you and I, we're the application of the lordship of Jesus and his right to judge. But we have to take this seriously. I think this is why intimacy is so important to me, that you and I learn how to hear the voice of God. That the more we're able to listen to God for our own lives, the more we're able to listen to it, for, for one another and to actually lead each other in accountability into newness of life. And So one of the things that I've been really praying about on this journey especially as we're examining this loving community thing is what is it that keeps so many in our community in limbo? Why is it that so many of us struggle with keeping someone at arm's length? That there's just enough interaction for it to itch that scratch of human connection? But there's not so much closeness that I'm actually being invited to open up and perhaps change and allow someone else to speak into my life. And this is what I really felt like the Lord said for us. We have to move through ambivalence to choose refinement. We have to move through ambivalence to choose refinement. The therapist Dan Allender talks about refinement. He says amb- ambivalence is a sense of being torn in two of being divided. He tells this story of his four-year-old daughter coming to him at one point and saying, Dad, I want this thing, but I also don't want this thing. And isn't that the perfect demonstration of ambivalence? But I think all of us in here, if we're here, we believe this. We want community and accountability, and we also don't want community and accountability. And we're being torn in two within ourselves because we want this thing, but we also don't want it. James, one of the harsher letters in the New Testament will say, he says this, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And when we live in the place of ambivalence, we live with a double-mindedness, that we recognize that we want something, but we also don't want it. And it leads us nowhere. Because this is the crazy thing about ambivalence, because, because we're not making a choice, not choosing becomes choosing and we choose the no. And so ambivalence becomes this illusion of control that in some way we're able to determine how much we give over of ourselves to other people within this room, but it keeps us from getting the thing that I think we were designed for, that our our souls cry out for. And so how do we move through ambivalence to be able to choose refinement, to choose accountability? You know, research suggests that you can't just make a choice and pass through it, and that's over and done with. And so one of the things that I've discovered is this. First of all, you have to bless your ambivalence. Don't fight it. To be able to recognize that you want and yet you don't want something. To be honest with yourself. To open yourself up to the Spirit of God and to allow Him to name that ambivalence. Because I think when you and I bless the ambivalence in our lives, what we are doing is that we're blessing the wounds that we've received from bad community that caused those things in the first place. We're blessing those stories and those moments in previous communion where we have been vulnerable and opened ourselves to other people and they've taken advantage of us. And we're naming that and when we name that before the Lord, we're robbing it of so much of its power. And it, and it enables us to be able to take the next step into genuine community and accountability and refinement. And so I want us to take that, that acknowledgement with us that we want this thing, but we also don't want it. To ask those questions, what is it that I really desire? But also, what is it that the Lord desires for me? And do I trust him? Do I trust that his desires for me are greater than my own? And to name that and take it on with us on the journey towards wholeness. And I think what happens when we begin to bless our ambivalence is that we open up our stories and we begin to ask for help. Because we recognize that we're torn in two and that we need a savior and that we need each other. And it's out of that place of touching our weakness and our powerlessness that we're able to open up to other people and to say, I'm stuck. I want this thing, but I also don't want it. I believe, but also help me in my unbelief. And it's when we open ourselves up to people and community in that way that we find the belonging that we so desire. We also find the transformation that we know that we're all called to. So I want you to, to stand with me. And we're gonna take a moment and we're gonna pray over one another specifically in the place of ambivalence. And the first thing that we, I wanna do is I'm gonna pray that the Spirit, just right now in this moment, would reveal to each of us where our stories are kind of frozen by our fear of stepping into deeper community, of really choosing into fellowship. And we need God to give us this very big vision of what it looks like when we arrive, but we also need God to give us just the next step. What's just the next place that he'd have me go? And after I pray for that, and we're gonna have a moment of of just allowing the Lord to speak to each one of us here, and and we believe at this church that everybody can hear the voice of God, Um, we're gonna lay hands on each other, uh, and we're gonna pray blessing over the ambivalence that each of us struggles with. We're gonna pray for those places where we're afraid of each other, and we're gonna choose into that. Because I believe that that first step to intimacy is one that you and I, we have to take out of faith and hope because it's something that maybe many of us haven't experienced yet. And so we take it by faith because we trust that God is good and that he will lead us to good places. And we take it by hope because we know wherever he's taking us is far better than anything we could imagine. And it's only after that, when we take that first step by faith and hope, that we stay there because we experience the reality of love. So I want you to close your eyes and I want you to put both of your hands out in front of you. And I want you to let your right hand be the symbol of, I want this. I want community. I want someone to hold me accountable. I want someone to comfort me. I want somebody to challenge me. And I want you to put your left hand out and to go, and yet, I also don't. I don't, I want to keep my secrets. I don't want to let anybody in. I don't want to change. And I want you to keep both of those hands out in front of you. And I'm going to pray and we'll let the spirit work. Spirit of Jesus, you are a spirit of advocacy, and you do not come to condemn us, but you do come to challenge us. And so Holy Spirit, we're here before you with two hands out open before you, with hearts open before you, with ears open ready to hear your voice. We invite you to speak to each one of us, to reveal moments in our stories, where fear has gotten the best of us, where we have tried to be vulnerable, where you've tried to pursue intimacy, but it was thrown back on our faces and we said, never again. Jesus, would you come and bless those stories with your presence, a presence that doesn't wag a finger at us, a presence that that doesn't judge us in its condemnatory way, but a presence that authenticates us, affirms us, and transforms us. So Holy Spirit, we give you permission to move in this room right now. Speak to us, who are listening. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Now as we continue to step into worship together, I encourage you to turn to the people that you came with, to lay hands, those same two hands, those hands of ambivalence, use those hands to lay them on someone else and to bless them, to bless their story, to believe that when we open ourselves up to one another in weakness and powerlessness, that's the place that we're really able to encounter a Jesus who heals and saves so we're going to take some time to minister to one another and then we're going to sing songs of praise and adoration to our king so I encourage you to move somebody in this room, uh, to lay hands on them, to bless them, and to allow them to bless you, even if it's somebody that you don't know. Let's, Let's demonstrate and exercise an extraordinary amount of trust in one another, that we can hear the voice of God on behalf of